All right, so we're in Titus. We're finishing up chapter 2, and that was something Jeff made clear to us that next week, chapter 3, he didn't, he didn't tell you that he's speaking next week, because, <laughs> and I would be looking forward to, to hearing it, but I'm going to be gone. My wife and I, we're going on our 40th anniversary, so we'll be gone for a little bit. Yeah, you, you can cheer her, because I'll tell you. Some of you know me, you're going, yeah. But in, in the book of Titus, Titus, it, it is the theme that we picked is establish. So when you think about a company that's established, it means the year that it was founded, right? Well, we're saying it, for this book, the book itself was established in 64 AD. That's the year that Paul wrote it to Titus. And as you know, just a little review, the people, the believers, they probably came from Acts chapter 2. They were Jewish people that heard the gospel in Acts chapter 2. Go back home. This is 30 years before the book is written. Go back into their towns, and they're starting these churches, and now Paul and Titus go there after his second imprisonment. And he's like, Titus, <laughs> the churches are in need. They need sound what? Doctrine. They need godly leaders, and today we're going to talk about how important all of that is based on grace, based on grace. Look at this little map. There we go. That should remind you, there's Crete, apparently a very, very beautiful island. We're not going there. It's a long ways away, but that's where Crete is, and when you think about the idea here, this is what I want you to get. We're going to talk about the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. What's a scandal? You go, oh, did you hear about? You shouldn't say that, but that's what people do. In their heads, they go, oh, I can't believe that. It's something that's, that happens that's shocking and in a sense, it really is something that people can stumble over. When you think about this idea, the scandal of grace, you go, well, how does that relate? How does that connect? How is grace scandalous? I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus, perfect God, perfect man, sent by the Father to come to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross, rise again, an offer to rebels and enemies of his eternal life as a free gift. It's scandalous. It's offensive because we all go, that just seems too good to be true. That's what I said before I came to Christ. I'm like, this is, it's not possible. <laughs> this is way too good to be true. People that heard the gospel in the beginning felt that way. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the gospel. A stumbling block. This word, the, the word in the Greek is scandalon. It's a stumbling block. To Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. People look at the gospel, they go, that's too easy. That's what I thought for years. I said, that can't be that easy. And then when I finally understood it, I go, I'm not sure I want to do this. <laughs> Stumbled over it. Grace really is a new way to live. Grace is a new way to live. It really is. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that, if, that offers salvation to all people. You're going, wait a minute, grace of God appeared? You're going, wasn't God's grace here? It was here, but not to the extent that it is now. It appeared, and you know that word appeared means like the sun popping through after rain. Did we have some rain this past week? Yeah. And it was so neat when the sun's, you know, popping through, I'm going, finally. The grace of God appeared, it shows up. Think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, from Moses right up until Jesus comes, that's the Old Testament period, what did God require of his people? What did they have to do? What were some of the things that they had to do? Offer animal sacrifices. They couldn't go, well, let's see, I've got a three-legged lamb. I'm going to give that to God because I really don't want the three-legged lamb. It's not really helping me. They couldn't give, what, leftovers. Okay, so animal sacrifices. What else? What were they required to wear? Certain kind of clothing. You know, they couldn't have mixed garments. All of you were out of the Old Testament law. You're messed up. Because I guarantee you your clothes is not pure wool or pure this or that. So it had to be one item, one garment, one fabric, I should say. What about food? Certain foods. What, what was, what's a big one that everybody talks about? You can't eat, you couldn't. I mean, think about that. Imagine if that was going on now in this area. We would have some problems. There's always brisket. There were Sabbath days. On the Sabbath, from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, you were required or prohibited from doing certain things. Couldn't travel so far, you couldn't, whatever. There's a lot of things. And the beginning of these commands, well, some people go, well, maybe they're just suggestions, God's pen suggestions. They're not. They're commands. Many of the Old Testament commands carry over in principle for us. But the grace of God appears. It actually comes and is introduced because of Jesus. Jesus brings God's grace. Harry Ironside. Anybody know who Harry Ironside is? An old school preacher. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible. A scholar, a pastor. He said this about grace. He defines grace this way. Grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. In other words, we can't earn God's favor. We deserve God's judgment, and he's willing to give his grace, his gift of eternal life to anyone who receives it through Christ. Philip Yancey, in his book about grace, says this. 
Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more, nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus brings grace in. That's why we're in the period of grace right now. The Old Testament law, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, Paul is trying to encourage and challenge the believers of this transition that's taken place. Now, if the ministry that brought death, he's referring to the Old Testament, what was the purpose of the law? It was to show people what? Their sin. Now, if the ministry that brought death was engraved in letters on stone, he's referring specifically to the Ten Commandments, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory, transitory though it was. Remember when he comes down from Mount Sinai and his face is glowing, and what do they say? (laughs) Cover up your face. It is hurting our eyes. They didn't even want to be at the mountain. They didn't even want to be at the foot of the mountain because they didn't want to hear God, his voice. Verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? The ministry of the Spirit refers to the time of grace. We're in the ministry of the Spirit now. He is at work. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Wow. The church age is also the age of grace, is also the age of the Spirit of God. All of that is combining to bring us to a place, a new way of living, a new life that God wants us to live for him. In this chapter, chapter 2, grace is personified. It's seen as appearing, but it's also seen in this chapter, in verse 12, it's seen as the teacher. Grace is seen as our teacher. Chapter 2, verse 12 says this, referring to grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So uh, think about a, a teacher that you really enjoyed. Maybe in your elementary school years, your high school years, I, I had to think about that. and I thought, you know, there was a, quite a few teachers that some of you are teachers here. And you know you have students that go, wow, I really like you, and some that maybe don't. But I had this one teacher in college. She was our Greek professor. She was a single woman, totally devoted to ministry and work, and she challenged us so often. She would do devotions at the beginning of class, and with tears in her eyes, She would exhort us and say, you're going to be leading people someday. Just think about that. She would read from her Greek New Testament and challenge us with devotions of that. She not only loved us, but she would call us out on certain things and challenge us. And that's what good teachers do. 
Good teachers say, you know what? You can't do this. My wife's sister and her daughter, her niece, were at our house, and her, her, her niece is a teacher, and she was going through all the things. I'm like, man, you sound like a parent. You sound like a parent. You got you to do this. You got to make sure that they do this. And you got to make sure. When do you get to do the lesson? When you think of this word here, it teaches us. That word is used of child training. The Holy Spirit working in us teaches us over and over again through repetition. Why does he have to do that? <laughs> I know why he has to do it for me because this thing is pretty thick. Okay? I'll speak for myself. It refers to child training. As you know, we came here for our kids and grandkids, and one of the, one of the grandkids' names is Ayrton, and he's our, our oldest daughter's son, and my wife picks him up from school, and I, we got to take him over to his home, and so he was in the back seat while, we're, while I'm driving, and Lisa's there, and he says, Pop, Pop, I got something really cool, a good surprise for you. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, he's got so many ideas. <laughs> and we've been planning this thing, and he hasn't forgotten. And he goes, Mom got some big cardboard boxes. Because I told him, once you get the cardboard boxes, we're going to make some forts. He hasn't forgotten, okay? So we made these forts. In his garage, I mean, these were big forts that I could be in one, he could be in one. The whole purpose of the fort was for Nerf Wars, okay? So I said, Ayrton, you're going to design it. He goes, oh, I know. And so I'm getting the tape out, and we're cutting it. I'm pulling my pocket knife out. We're cutting the cardboard, and he's all excited. And then his mom says, okay, it's time for dinner. We got them all put in place in the playroom, and we're all set. And he's like, we, you get five guns each. That's how many Nerf guns this guy's got. That's just a small, you know, small armory. Five guns each. And then his mom goes, time for dinner. And I'm waiting for this reaction. He's like, okay. And I said, come on, let's go. So we eat dinner, and he's like, let's go, Pop Pop. And she goes, you've got to do your homework. And I know. And he's like, Ugh. and I said, Ayrton, I'll help you with your homework. It was something easy, okay? I could do it, really, trust me. It was spelling. You're going, no, you can't spell. <laughs> all right, but all I had to do is go over the words with him, and we kept going over that, and after a few words, he's like, let's go, Pop-Up. I'm like, no, let's finish it. Let's go back in it, and that's what God does to us, doesn't he? He goes into us, and he says, I want to keep on this project. I'm going to help you. Don't give up. Get back to it. I'm going to show you. And it's very interesting. This week has been one of those project weeks. God's been showing me stuff, and I'm going, seriously? That's our present experience. That's called present sanctification, experiential sanctification. God is at work in the believer right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to develop us and make us more like Christ. And you know what? Sometimes it's painful. It hurts. How do we do this? We're saved by grace. We're to live by God's grace. We need his help and his enablement. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, 
Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. He's referring to his position. The moment you accept Christ, you died with Christ. That's what water baptism is a picture of. Death to your old life, burial, and resurrected to a new life. But Christ lives in me. Here's the key. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live this life by faith. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. John Encyclopedia says this with regard to grace, another definition. Grace is a bestowal of help by an act of one's generosity. Undeserved favor. Boy, do we need God's help. We need God's help because what do we try to do? We try to avoid, we try to get up and run away and go, no, I don't really want to work on that. God's like, get back. We need this. We need this. So ask yourself, are you relying on the Holy Spirit's help to live for Christ? I have to ask myself that all the time. That's present sanctification. That's what's happening right now for the believer. It is happening in your life. Don't resist it. Yield to it. Let God work in you. But there's also ultimate sanctification. There's a future hope that we have that's going to happen the moment God takes Jesus takes his church off the earth. Chapter 2, verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a statement of deity. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is going to remove the church, and so this is the hope that you and I have. He tells us to wait while we wait. Now think about waiting. Life is a waiting game, isn't it? Being down here, we get to, you know, today's going to be one of those days. You're going to hear a lot about the grandkids up here. I'm sorry. But we get to enjoy the grandkids' parties before it was like FaceTime. Now we get to experience them. It's crazy. And we just had Madden's birthday in March, and it's like a buildup for like three, four, five months. They get to pick a theme. It was tie-dye. Okay, and then everything gets, you know, whatever, there's all this, and they are so excited, they can't wait for it to happen, but life is taking place while it's happening. You think about an event that you have, you go, man, I can't wait for that, but you know what, life is taking place, and when you think about this, where it tells us to wait for the return of Christ, the appearance of Christ, you don't stop life. There were Thessalonian believers in that day and age that said, Jesus is coming back. We're going to stop working, and we're going to hold up in our homes. We're going to wait for Jesus to come back, and then they had to depend on others to take care of them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we have this hope. We know it's coming. It's going to happen, but we're going to continue doing what we have to do in life. And it becomes a motivator. It motivates us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
If you die before the rapture, you go immediately to be with Christ. It says, absent from the body is presence with the Lord. For those who are alive during when that rapture takes place, it's the resurrection of all the church. Their bodies are glorified. And we get to see Christ and be with him during that tribulation. Here's a question for all of us. Are you looking forward to Jesus appearing? Does it motivate you? If not, why not? So the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is our teacher. But the grace of God is also a rescue squad. Because it's a team effort. Jesus did not act alone. The Holy Spirit and the Father, they work together. They're a team. The Father sends the Son. He does the work, dies on the cross, rises again. The Holy Spirit now takes the truth of the gospel and applies it to people's lives. And they come to faith in Christ. They trust Christ. And they get the gospel, the good news, eternal life applied to their life. So there's this team effort. Now, I know there's some folks in our church that are involved in rescue in some way. EMT or whatever. I could never do that. I have trouble watching some of those shows. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says this. Referring to Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own. He gave himself. He put himself in our place, which is insane. That's why it's such a scandal. It's such offense to us. We go, how in the world would God do this? Put himself in our place. That word redeem is actually the word for ransom. And you're going, what, who had to be paid? The father. What was the just demand or just payment was our sins had to be paid for. And they were paid for by Christ, who was perfect, who never sinned. And therefore, he paid the penalty so that we could have eternal life. Great exchange, as C.S. Lewis calls it. Sometimes I really don't get into dog movies, okay? But I, there's this one dog movie, this true story. It's called The Rescue, Rescue of Ruby. Anybody seen that movie? I hear a yup somewhere. Okay. Pretty good movie. It's based on a true story. It's based on Rhode Island State Police. This guy wants, I'm not going to ruin it for you, okay? It's based on a story of a guy who is a state trooper and wants to be in the canine unit, but they didn't have the money so that he could have a German shepherd. They cost a lot of money. And the, the guy doing the training says, go find your own dog. So he goes to a dog shelter. He finds a dog that's right on the edge, like nobody wants this dog. It's, right, <laughs> it's going to die. And he gets the dog, and the people that run the shelter are so happy, one, that somebody get, get this dog before it's the end of its life, but also to get rid of the dog, like, okay, it's causing so much trouble. And he thinks, man, we can just turn this dog into a rescue dog, and through training and help, that dog, Ruby, becomes the national rescue dog in 2018. Crazy part is, and just as a spoiler alert, but the, you, you, the movie's great, so I gotta say this, okay? 
The dog had such amazing ability. There was a boy lost in that area in the woods. He'd wandered away and got lost. And he'd been in the woods for almost 36 hours. Nobody could find him. He had fallen off a cliff and he was hurt. Ruby found him. <laughs> and the crazy part is this boy, young teenager, was the son of the director of the dog shelter. Yeah. <laughs> I kept looking this up and going, this can't be true. Truth is stranger than fiction. Billy Graham said, God is the hound of heaven. He's going to pursue you. So you come to Christ. Don't resist. And if you're walked away from God, don't resist. He's going to pursue you. He's going to come after you. He's not going to let go. last idea here in personification of grace is the work fruit. Verse 14, it says, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We are saved to do good works. Many, many people think, oh, I got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. And that is totally missing what God wants you and I to do. He wants us to be busy. He wants us to be serving, involved in the community, involved with those around us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Notice that. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. God says, I saved you for a purpose. Right here, right now. What do you need God's healing touch for? What's in your life that you go, man, nobody really knows about that. But it's just eating away at my soul. It's just tearing me up. He says right here, by his wounds you have been healed. And he wants to continue that healing process. He wants to bring you to a place where you go, okay, Lord, I turn it over to you. Give it to you. See, the work, the work crew is involved in good works. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, actually Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, is our church's theme verse. Listen to what it says. You are the light of the world. A city set at a hill can't be hidden. Now we have these projects, right? We have projects for the city. It's really neat to see people just stepping up and donating this or helping in this way. And we, you know, if you need more information, Jenna's the one behind that. It's so cool to see. That's what we want to be more about. We want to do that. Listen to what he says here. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's really the beginning. It's like a preemptive, preemptive strike for people. They need to see that it's working in us. 
I mean, I'm, I'm excited about this prayer walk because it brings us together as a church, and then we're just praying for the community. And you go, well, I can't. I don't know if I'll be able to make it. That's okay. At 2 o'clock, just think about it and say, okay, I'm praying for Canapolis. That's a good work. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said this. The vision of the church in the New Testament is a colony of heaven in a hostile world. Just think about that. It's not a holy huddle <laughs> where we go, okay, I'm safe here in church. I don't have to venture out and see lost people or be around lost people. It is a place where God strengthens us so that we can do good works. D.L. Moody said this, of 100 men, one will read the Bible, the 99 will lead the Christian. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a light. The light of the world, a city set at a hill. The work crew not only is involved in doing good works, but also in good words. Good words. For years, working my way through school, at different times, I should say, I was on construction crews, framing, trim work, putting up metal buildings. The interesting thing is that the construction crews, if they don't know Christ, they have a different language than us. <laughs> they like to use the adjectives, a lot of the same adjectives. And you know what I'm talking about. And it's not very encouraging. When you don't do what you're supposed to, they let you know. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, These then, and he's saying this to Titus, These then are the things you should teach, the things you should speak. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, How can we encourage one another? How can we be those people that go, I see where you're hurting. Let me help you. Let me encourage you. Let me pray for you. How can we be that kind of church? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He's talking to believers, people that walk away from God. We should be those people that say, let me pray for you. Let me hear what you have to say. What's bothering you? Verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be calloused, and that's what the word hardened means, by sin's deceitfulness. There have been so many people in my life that have encouraged me, come alongside me and said, don't give up, stay in the battle. Not only do we need to be encouragement within the church here, we also need to speak to people who don't know Christ. When he says, these then are the things you should teach or speak, it's the idea. Think about this. The world outside of us needs to hear the gospel of grace, not the gospel of performance. Jesus did the work. He did all of the work. That's what's so amazing, and that's why people stumble over it. They go, it's too easy. He did the work. It wasn't easy for him. The crazy thing in the Old Testament when God talks about creation in the Psalms, he said it took his fingers to create. 
he talks about salvation and says he took the strong arm of the Lord because it was so difficult. This was not easy for Jesus to do. But he made it easy for those who don't know Christ to just open their heart and trust in him. Who can you share Christ with? Who can you preach the gospel of grace to? John 17, 20, Jesus' earthly prayer, remember that prayer? He says this, my prayer is not for them alone. He's praying for his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We've heard their message. It's recorded in the New Testament. We get to share this now with others outside of Christ. That's why I get excited when Tanya says, hey, we're going to do this event called Rise Up. People can invite families to on April 16th. What a great opportunity for you and for me to be able to go, hey, we're doing this. Come on out. Bring your kids to this. Starting April 24th, we're going to do Invite Your One again. I want to challenge you to be praying and saying, God, who do you want me to invite? See, grace is a scandal because it's such a shock. It's such a shock. For years, I stumbled over that idea that God would accept me and forgive me when I put my total trust in Christ, that I didn't have to earn it. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't deserve it. It was totally the work of Christ. And if you have trusted Christ, he has provided, God has provided a new way to live, the way of grace, the way of grace. The Holy Spirit lives in every believer he might be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, you got to turn away from this. Listen to him. He'll give you the strength. Confess your sin, turn away from it, and let God give you the power, as Paul says. As we wrap this up, have you trusted Jesus to save you? Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Who gave himself for us to ransom us from all wickedness. He made him, God the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we would become righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. That's insane. Have you trusted Christ? Or are you just running and saying, I'm going to do it myself? You think Jesus is not enough, then you'll never get there. You have to accept the fact that you're lost and you can't save yourself and that you need help. You need to be rescued. As most of you know, I grew up in, I grew up in upstate New York. In March, it would not get this warm. Okay? It would start to thaw out a little bit get above 35 a little bit, and snow would start to melt a little bit. And I remember, just vaguely remember, as like a five-year-old, I remember this because it was such a traumatic thing. My older brother and I, we, we were always competing with each other, but this day we, we went outside to play in the snow and had our big snow suits. You don't even own those, I know that. Big snowsuits, hat, gloves. And I'm like five years old. He's like seven. 
and we're playing in the backyard, and the neighbor girl's across the fence. There's this little fence. She goes, hey, come on over. So we jumped the fence. I probably flopped over the fence as a little guy. And we're in her yard. We're playing, and she's got a fish pond. And we were so bright. I said, hey, let's jump on the ice. And I'm jumping on the ice in the deep end of the pond. And I hear my brother go, Daddy, you okay? Boom, through the ice. I'm just holding on for dear life. And he and that other girl, he and that girl pulled me out because I couldn't save myself. Now, maybe that's you. You think you can save yourself. You can't. Jesus is the only Savior, not you. Call on him. He says, whoever calls on me will be saved. Have the band come forward as we conclude the service singing a song I requested, Scandal of Grace. I want you to think about that as a believer. If you know Christ, how is it that you are relying upon the Holy Spirit to help you live the life God wants you to live? And if you don't know Christ, don't put it off. Open your heart to him. Trust in him.